you would take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 28. Hebrews 11, verse 28 will be our text. We're, we're still looking at Moses, and just by way of setting the context of where we've been, in verse 23 we looked at the faith of Moses' parents, we then moved into Moses' faith, and we saw Moses's, or we've seen Moses' faith unfold in, in three different ways. And this section can be basically summed up on Moses in these three different ways, is that first, Moses had a greater desire for God than he had for the world. The second thing, we saw that Moses' courage came as a result of faith. And this morning, our text shows us his trust in God and how he trusted in God. And I think the order of all of this is instructive, this idea that it begins with him having a greater desire for God than that of the world. And because if we still love the world, if Moses still loved the world, he would not have trusted in the blood of Christ. And as we get to the final verse in verse 28, our text this morning, we see that's exactly what he's doing. And is by faith he trusted in the blood of Christ. Now, why are there so many different angles of Moses put here, since most of the examples you see, except for Abraham, just a single example of someone's faith? Why is Moses put forth before these Hebrews in such a full manner, and that we really see that the course of almost the entirety of his ministry well, Moses was a crucial example, particularly for the Hebrews. If you remember, in the context of the Hebrews, there were these warnings for them to not go back to the law as a means of salvation. In fact, the Hebrews were tempted to look away from Christ and look back to the temple, look back to the sacrifices, look back to the law itself as a means of salvation and assurance. And so Moses is put before them, and who is Moses but the lawgiver? And the example of Moses is not that he kept the law, but that he was a man of faith in the unseen God and in the promises of God. And this is why Moses is put before them, and this is why Moses is put before us, as a reminder that we're not saved by the law. We're justified in the blood of the Lamb. So let us hear the text. Let us hear God's word. Verse 28, By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. There's three things that I want to ask. Is first, what was the Passover itself? Uh, second is, why was the Passover needed? And, and third, how is it that the, the Passover is applied? So those three questions of what, why, and how. So what was the Passover? Well, it says in the text, by faith he kept the Passover. Now, just note that word kept for a second. We would see that as a, the, the process of someone recognizing an institution of some sort and then keeping to it. 
a lot of the older translations, even prior to the King James translation, you would find the word kept as translated as ordained. And that, that is that Moses ordained the Passover. Now, all the translators are looking at the same Greek word, so why are these two different words used to translate the same word? Well, what we have to see is in the Passover, not only did Moses personally practice the Passover, Moses himself was trusting in God's means in the Passover, but also Moses instituted and ordained it as a perpetual ordinance for the people of God until the thing that was signified in the Passover was fulfilled in Christ. So he ordained it in the sense that God instituted the Passover through Moses. Again, when we think of Moses, we oftentimes think of the lawgiver. And so, what was this Passover? What was the Passover that was such a massive part of Israel's history? Well, the Passover represented Israel's freedom from slavery in Egypt. It was a moment of mercy through judgment in which God spared those that were covered in the blood of the Lamb. When you see the word Passover in Scripture, there's usually four reference that it's referring to. The first would be just the entire feast of the Passover, that which is described in Exodus 12. So if you sometimes will see the word Passover, it's just referring to all that's in Exodus 12, the whole entire thing. Other times it's referring to just the sacrifice. Sometimes it's referred to as just the lamb. And then the fourth thing that the Passover refers to in Scripture, when you see that word of Passover, is that it's referring to Christ and what Christ accomplished for his people. So those are the four ways in which you see Passover used in Scripture. But the point of Hebrews here is not referring to the lamb, it's not referring to the sacrifice, it's actually referring to the entirety of the sacrifice and how that is fulfilled in Christ. So those, the first way that we see it is in referring to the entire Passover itself, the entire feast, and how it points to Christ is how Hebrews is using it. Now, when we think about the Passover, there were very specific instructions. And I'll just summarize these really quickly. When, they were the, when it was instituted, when it was ordained by Moses, there was to be a lamb that would be set aside. It would be slaughtered. The, the blood would be placed over the doorframe, distinguishing the houses. The lamb would be roasted over fire. The people would be dressed in a manner that allowed them quick exit. And they were to eat in haste, so that way they could leave, and they were to consume the entire lamb. That's a, that's a brief summary of Exodus 12. That's, that's what the Passover looked like. So how does this encourage the Hebrews then? And what does this have to do with us? Well, there's a lot of things that you could look at, and when you look at the Passover, God rescues his people. And that's what God did in the Passover. God rescues his people. 
And we also see, also if we just take that a step further, he rescues his people through means, and the means was the shed blood of a lamb. We could also say that, what, how, how would thinking back on the Passover encourage these Hebrews, and how would it encourage us? Well, God hears your cries. The people of Israel had been crying out to God, and God heard their cries. God answered their prayers. It could communicate to these Hebrews and could communicate to us, God has not abandoned you. You may be going through difficult times. You may be struggling and you're suffering, and God has not abandoned you. All of these things could be communicated in the thought of what the Passover, and all are certainly true. But what we see in the Passover is the whole feast itself was a picture of a greater exodus that would come about through the sacrifice of the true Lamb of God. And this, this is where the, the point of the whole entire passage lies for us today, is that the entire feast and all of the elements of it were pointing to something that would be greater realized in Christ. So when you think of the Passover and you see Passover in Scripture, you could basically think of it in one of two ways. Something that brought temporal rescue and deliverance or you can see it in a spiritual manner in which it's realized and fulfilled in Christ. And as we'll see this morning, is that the Passover and all of the elements that are mentioned in the Passover actually point to Christ and also point to something that has to do with the Christian life. And so as we look at the Passover this morning, I just want us to see that we should see it with Christ being the fulfillment of it. In fact, Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, where he writes, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So when we think about the Passover in the Old Testament, the institution of it, all of the laws that were surrounding in it, what we have to do in the final conclusion of it is see Christ. That's why it was recorded for us. Let me just give you some examples of this. I'm going to give you ten different examples in which we should see this as Christ. And I'm going to go back and forth between Exodus and the New Testament, and I'm going to give you the passages I'm reading, but don't, don't try to keep up because I'm going to go quickly through them, otherwise we'll be here until tomorrow. In Exodus, we see in these instructions in chapter 12 and verse 5, and that's, that's where the description of it is. We read this, Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. Now, the, the, the lamb that had to be chosen could not just be any lamb, but it had to be a specific lamb, and that was one without spot, without any sort of marking on it. It had to be without any sort of blemish on it. And that was to recognize the purity of the animal itself. Now, that was very important. We might think of it because God required this um, and he wanted that purity, but actually the purity was to represent something else later on. 
And this is why Peter says that we have been ransomed with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And what is that referring to? That is referring to the sinless life of Christ. And so when we think of Passover, we think of the spotless lamb, we must then think of the sinless Lord Jesus Christ. Because Christ was without blemish, it means this, he may now cover my blemishes. Because he was without sin, he may cover my sins. That's something the law could never do. The law could simply expose my blemishes, but one without blemish was required to stand on my behalf. You see that in that same passage in Exodus 12, not only was it to be a lamb without blemish, but it was also to be taken from the sheep or the goats. You might think, what, is, what does that have to do with Christ, that the, the sheep was to be taken from sheep of like manner? It was to be taken from a flock. Well, isn't that what we see in the Lord Jesus Christ in taking on his humanity? In fact, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. The lamb was chosen from the flock specifically as Christ himself is chosen out of humanity, that Christ himself takes on human nature. Christ himself becomes Man, that he could stand on behalf of man. Not only was it to be without blemish and it was to be taken from the flock, but it was to be separated. We read in verse 6, And you shall keep it from until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. So in other words, after the lamb was chosen, after the lamb was set apart from the flock, it was to be separated well, wasn't Christ without sin? Wasn't Christ separated from mankind? When we read this in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26, for it was fitting indeed that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. In other words, that separation of the Lamb was to be pointing towards that Lamb of God that would be separated on our behalf. It says that he would be killed in verse 6 of Exodus. It says, When the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight, you might think of it that is that they were to be slain. Well, what do we read of Christ? Well, in Revelation chapter 13, in verse 8, we read, that he is the lamb who was slain. Again, as we look at the Passover, what are we seeing? We're seeing a picture of Christ. Then we read this, as in verse 7 of Exodus, Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on two doorposts and at the lintel of their houses, and they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire." What was the purpose of roasting it on the fire? They were very specific. They could not boil it, which was a common way of doing things. But why was it to be the lamb to be roasted? What does fire represent all throughout Scripture? God's wrath. 
God's judgment upon a people. The Lamb actually undertakes for our sake this fury of judgment and fire. What is it that Christ does for us? But that he is under the judgment of God. He who was without sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And so now fire was a picture even of God's wrath upon the Lamb. It's interesting that you'll read that no bones of the Lamb were to be broken. In chapter 12 and verse 46, it's, we read this, It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside of the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. What's that about? If you think, really, should we see all of these elements really fulfilled in Christ? Isn't that just a stretch too far? Well, notice what Psalm 34 verse 20 says. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. And then what do we read in the Gospel of John? Well, in the Gospel of John in chapter 19, in the crucifixion, what exactly do we read about Christ? Beginning in John in verse 32, it says, So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other had been crucified with him. Why did they do this? Why did they break the legs of those that were on the cross? It was to speed up their death to make sure that they would die because they had to take them down before dawn. And so, or before the evening, so they break their legs. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. It's amazing that in the Exodus, you, you wonder how much... Moses and them would see all of these elements unfolding in the future Messiah. But that his bones would not be broken was to show the manner of death that he would, he would suffer and that he would experience and that it all unfolded exactly according to God's word. In the Passover, they were required to eat all of the lamb they had to eat all of it. It says in Exodus 12.10, And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it. In other words, that they had to partake of this lamb. They couldn't just eat a part of it and save some for later, but rather they had to consume all of it. It had to be all complete by the next morning, and what wasn't completed had to be burned so that there was none of it left. I think that's one of the clearest pictures that we see in what Christ does for us. What does Christ even command his disciples? He says this, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And you notice that word, whoever feeds, that is the continual feeding, the continual eating upon Christ. Is that in Christ, we don't just take a part of Christ, but we have the whole Christ just as they were to partake of the whole lamb.
They were also supposed to eat in haste. In chapter 12, verse 11, In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened and your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. And why would they eat it in haste? Why would they be dressed to go? Well, because the Egyptians wanted them out of there. They didn't want to suffer anymore, so they were to eat in haste so that that way they could experience their deliverance. So when they remembered what was done for them, and they looked back upon it, they were still supposed to practice it this manner. You know, we, we would be making a tragic mistake if we didn't recognize that section where it says they ate in haste. That they had a preparedness for the Passover taking place. They had a preparedness for the coming of the Lord's judgment upon them. So they ate it in haste. That way they could depart quickly. Let me just ask you, if you're in Christ, how are you to live the Christian life? This becomes a manner of how we can look back upon the Passover and are reminded of how we're supposed to live our lives. Well, Paul tells us actually, and I want you to notice the similarities between them eating it in haste and Paul's instructions. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul writes, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. It's kind of like you live in such a way because the destroyer is going to come tonight. Exactly as they were prescribed to do in the Passover, Paul says that, we are to live our lives in this way. He goes on to say, But you're not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and the love and for a helmet of the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or sleep, here it is, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you're doing. Let us always be prepared to leave when Christ returns. Let us live our lives in such a way that our hearts are not set upon this world, but we're actually reminded in our Passover lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, that he's going to return. Let us eat in haste, if you will. Let us eat dressed and ready for action for when the Lord himself comes. Also, the instruction in this is that there was to be no leaven. In verse 19 of Exodus 12, for seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether it is a sojourner or a native of the land. You know, it's interesting how Christ uses that word leaven later on when Christ chastises the Pharisees 
How does he describe them? Well, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 12, he says, Then they understood that he did not tell them to be aware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. What is the meaning of that? We're not to have any false doctrine amongst us. We're not to have the leaven of false doctrine. Christ has given us the final and complete revelation of God. We are no longer looking back upon the law for salvation as the Pharisees were. We want no leaven of the Pharisees in our midst. There's a tenth thing, and it's this, is that they were to eat it with bitter herbs. It says, They shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. I'm just going to quote William Perkins where he says this, and certainly this is true, quote, No man can feel the sweetness in the blood of Christ till he have his heart full of bitterness for his sins. They partook of it with bitter herbs. Then what did they do from here? It says they sprinkled the blood. They sprinkled the blood. In verse 22, the instructions were this. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. So they sprinkled this blood. And so the blood that covered the door was what spared them. How were they made acceptable before God? Well, the simple answer is blood. Where was their confidence? Ask yourself this question. Where were these Israelites' confidence? Was their confidence in their faith or was their confidence in the blood of the Lamb? If their confidence was in their faith, they would have no confidence. But their confidence was in the blood of the Lamb that covered them. Their confidence was in God. And by this blood, God distinguished those that came under His judgment. What do we read? Of Christ. Ephesians 1.7, In Him we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Ephesians 2.13, we read this, is but now in Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Where does your confidence lie this morning? Does your confidence lie in how well you have lived the Christian life? Does your confidence lie in how great your faith is, how much you've read your Bible, how, how good your prayers sounded? Where does your faith lie? Does your faith lie in the blood of Christ, in whom we have redemption, in whom we have been ransomed by His blood? Where does your confidence lie this morning? You see, our hope, our confidence is never in ourselves, but it is in Christ and His shed blood. So let me just plainly ask you this morning, have you trusted in Christ? Are you resting in Christ this morning this is what sets you apart from experiencing the wrath of God. It is the blood of Christ that sets you apart and distinguishes you 
so that you do not come under the wrath of the destroyer. And if you're covered by the blood of Christ, then death has lost its sting over you and you need not have fear because you're covered by the blood of the Lamb. Now why? Why was this Passover necessary? Well, according to Hebrews, we're told why. It says in the text, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. That word, so that, is a purpose clause. It's teaching us the purpose of why the Passover was instituted. And specifically, according to the text, we read, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. This, this boils down to what we would just say, why was it necessary was because of the wrath of God. Because of the wrath of God. Well, who was this destroyer? Well, when you look at the text in Exodus 12, it primarily comes down to God. You go through Exodus 12 later and note all of the times that the Lord says, I will. So primarily as we look at it, it's the Lord, but the Lord accomplishes it through instrumentality, and that is through an angel. And who was the target of the destroyer? Well, it says in Hebrews, the firstborn. When you read in Exodus, it, it elaborates on that a little bit more. And we read this, And every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. We probably are disturbed by that verse, aren't we? I mean, you can understand why judgment would come upon Pharaoh. He was this wicked, evil man with a hardened heart that was abusing God's people. But then you read of the slave girl who's behind the mill, which is referring to any in Egypt that were not covered with the blood of the lamb. The firstborn would be destroyed even the cattle. I think we need to feel the weight of that because Scripture not only records it, but Passover next to Exodus, the Exodus is one of the biggest events in Israel's history. And so does this not draw into question some, maybe some difficult ethical questions for Christians? Because wasn't it Pharaoh that was wiping out the first born male, and then the male children, and God condemned him for that? You know, one thing is, is that we are very quick to forget is our own depravity and sinfulness. We're very quick to forget what Scripture tells us is that even in my mother's womb was I brought forth in sinfulness. We tend to forget that we're sinful and we're born in sin and all of Adam's children are brought forth in sin 
And at the same time, while we're quick to recognize God's love and exalt that as wonderful it is, we tend to forget God's own love for his righteousness. And that sinfulness offends a righteous God. And so, when we begin to think of what's fair and unfair, we, we have to remember God judging sin does no harm to our conception of what's fair or unfair because God is perfectly righteous. And so correctly understanding the wrath of God is crucial to get to this point. God's wrath is technically not an attribute of God. And that's what's crucial. Because if we listed as God's attributes wrath, we would then immediately conceive of God's wrath like our anger. Rather, God's wrath is just simply the manifestation of his justice. And so when we read in Exodus 11.5 that every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, if we immediately go to, that's not fair, we have not understood justice. We have not understood righteousness. We have not understood holiness. And we have not understood the nature of God himself. Should a passage like this disturb us? Yes, because sin is disturbing to God. And if God is a just God, he must punish sin. And as we think about it, God to slay his perfect son is actually what's unfair. And he does it to show mercy to a people that apart from his grace would remain in their sin and demonstrate their hatred towards him. So we must come to grips with Passover. What it represents and how it was fulfilled in Christ. And we have to see it as a bloody and violent ordinance that God himself instituted. We are seeing God's wrath on full display. And so we must be reminded in the Passover our own depth of sinfulness and what we deserve. We see here in this that blood and the taking of a life of a lamb that was without blemish, a beautiful lamb, was the result of of sin. What does scripture say? The wages of sin is what? It's death. That means that's what we earn for it. That's what we deserve for it. Our death or someone dies in our place. You see, friends, the wrath of God and the judgment of sin forces us to recognize our own sinfulness and need of a Savior. And unless we look at our own sinfulness in the face and recognize our need of a Savior, we'll never cry out to a Savior. If all I'm told is, oh, God loves you and it doesn't matter, then I have no need for a Savior if God loves me just the way I am. I think this is the great counterculture message 
Because the, count, the, the culture loves sin. And the world, as a result of its love for darkness, a love of sin, proclaims a lie of God. And what is that lie that the world proclaims? Is this, this is the lie, God delights in wickedness. That's the lie of the world. If you don't believe me, I will prove it to you very quickly. That this is the message of the world. God delights in wickedness. That's the message of the world. And I'll prove it to you this way. Two weeks ago, 123 million people tuned in to the most tuned in Super Bowl in the history of Super Bowls and watched a commercial called He Gets Us. Perhaps you saw it. What was the message of that, that, that commercial that was viewed by hundreds of millions of people? Jesus is okay with your sin. Jesus is okay with your sin. You don't have to change a thing. Jesus is all right with sin. You know, it's interesting, in the makers of that, whoever is behind that, their whole purpose is they're trying to rebrand Jesus in a culture so that Jesus would be more acceptable to them. The only reason they're able to do that is because our culture is so ignorant of the Lord Jesus Christ. The only reason they're able to do that and churches everywhere aren't going into epilepsy because of their anger is because even in the churches people are ignorant of the Lord Jesus Christ and who he is and what God thinks about sin. It says this, Jesus didn't teach hate in the commercial. He washed feet. You know, it's very interesting what they're trying to put forth in there, how they take a, a, a certain portion of truth and then just kind of twist it a certain way with emotional music and all of these things that, that draw you in emotionally. And that's the lie of the world. And the lie was this, God delights in wickedness. What do they do with the Passover? That's my question. What do they do with the Passover where God judges wickedness? What do they do with the cross? What do they do with the words of Jesus where he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments? What do they do with what we see of this spotless lamb in eternity and what this spotless lamb in eternity is doing? Well, Revelation chapter 14 says this, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur. You might think, well, that's, that's God. Well, if you read the rest of the verse, it says this, in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. In other words, Christ hates sin. Christ does not delight in, right, in, in wickedness. We cannot separate the God we see in the Old Testament from the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me just give you a syllogism. God hates sin. Would you agree with that? Scriptures makes it abundantly clear. You think of Proverbs and the Psalms where it explicitly states God hates sin. Here's our second statement, Jesus is God. Jesus is God, amen? Jesus hates sin. 
Jesus then must hate sin because Jesus is God. It is why he had to die on the cross. It is why he was the lamb that was slain, was because of sin. We look back upon this Passover, we're reminded of God's hatred of sin. And the question for us is, how can we who have experienced his grace, how can we who have trusted in this lamb slain, how could we continue in sin? And so when we look to the Passover lamb by faith, we need to know this, the lamb was slaughtered for me. And if you're in Christ, the lamb was slaughtered for you. You deserve what the lamb got, but the lamb stood in your place. How was this applied to the people? Well, by faith. It says, Moses by faith kept the Passover. It was a remarkable demonstration of Moses' faith in sight of the people. At this point that you get to Exodus 12, Moses has failed. Their condition had not improved, but had become worse. And now God asks for the people to kill a lamb and eat it in a prescribed way, put door on your blood on your doorframe. So you can imagine Moses, who keeps going through all of these plagues, goes to the people and says, hey, there's one more plague. I know none of the others had worked yet, but now I need you to go ahead and dress in this certain way. I need you to go kill a lamb, set it apart, take the blood and put it on your doorframes. Just trust me, God's going to do this. And they did. They did. Notice how it was applied. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel to the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. They were just simply to follow God's instructions and trust in God. So how do we apply the blood of the Lamb? Let me read you what John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This morning, have you beheld the Son? Have you beheld the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world? It is by faith that His blood is applied to you. And what we have to contend with is this, is whoever is not sprinkled with the blood of Christ by faith is under the wrath of God. And so in the words of John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Have you beheld the Lamb of God? Have you trusted in Him? Have you rested in Him? Have you received Him? If not, the Lord Jesus now commands you to trust in him, to look to him, to behold him, and he will not turn away any that look upon him. You just need to look upon the Lord Jesus. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our merciful high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died in our place, taking the wrath that we deserve on our behalf. We thank you for his complete atonement and that in him we are considered righteous in your sight. Father, we pray for forgiveness where we fall short and thank you that it is by your grace 
that we are saved and not by our works. It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen.